0: How many of you feel like you're going to just bust if you can't say amen right now? Yeah, that's just astounding, astounding worship. You're going to see in Romans 11 today why Paul writes the way he does about the greatness of God. And I'm going to invite you to go there, Romans chapter 11, if you would, if you have a Bible with you or you find them in in the racks around you or if you don't own a Bible, we have three Bibles in the back and they're on the table. Grab one when you leave this morning. They're on that brown table back there. Or you can follow along on the screen. uh, Maybe you have it on your phone or maybe on an iPad. You can uh, follow along that way, Romans chapter 11. Before we dive into the text this morning, a couple details for you, especially this one related to you ladies. In your bulletin this morning, there's a a little insert called Fall into Gratitude. And that's an event tomorrow night. Uh, It's for you to connect with other women in the church. Um, It's a dinner. And if you're interested and you're available and you have time for that, it's a great way for you to meet other women here at New Hope, especially if you're new and feel like you're not getting connected. So pay attention to that. And then coming up on Wednesday morning this week, um, there's a study called Altered, and that's for moms with kids who are still in school. My wife, Lori, will be leading that study. And then next week, Tuesday, is a, a regular um, study that starts for the semester of women's study also. So note those details. And then here's uh, one last thing for you before we jump into the text. Um, this last week, Derek took his drone out to the build site to put it together with some images that we wanted you to see about the progress of the construction. So if you look up on the screen, you're going to see what the property looked like before the excavation work started. And now you see after the excavation work is underway, it's a pretty flat surface there. But what you notice up in the top corner there is a kind of a white outline, and you're seeing the foundation of the children's wing. And so, yeah, that's pretty cool, isn't it? So that's the first one. We didn't ask them to make that the first one to go in, they just did it. So the children's wing is the first thing, and you're seeing about two-thirds of the children's wing. And once the concrete comes to an end, you'll see some forms that are in the trench. And those forms lead to the atrium area. You'll want to know that because that's where you're going to get your coffee eventually. Okay? Coffee, donuts, and cookies. And then it points up to the office wing. It ends up there. And then far off to the side on the left is where the auditorium will be. And so you'll get to see more as it develops. We're going to try and every few weeks keep bringing videos back to you so you have an update of how things are progressing. Um, Interesting thing is this, that uh, right now on the schedule, it's slated that on September 17th, September 18th, they're going to begin bringing the masonry block on site and erecting the walls and bringing the walls up out of the ground, so that'll be fun to watch. And then shortly after that, they're going to pour the slabs of concrete on the floor and steel will come up out of the ground and then you'll get to see the roof put on and they're hoping to do all that before snow flies so that they can have uh, uh, not dealing with the winter conditions but working in a dry environment. So I'm going to encourage you to continue praying for the construction workers. Praying for the guys that are on the job, not only for their safety, but for those who may not have any relationship with God whatsoever, and maybe you'll see them one day come into faith in Christ and join us in the church. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? So let's, let's be praying for them, praying for God's protection over that and how he's going to use that facility. It's like a giant billboard to all of people who are traveling up and down I-69 right now on, on Business 69. A lot of people are very interested in what's going on there. So I'd love to pray with you before we step into this text, and I want to pray very specifically with you this way. Um, The the passage we're going to look at in Romans chapter 11, you might look at and say, well, that's pretty daunting. That's complicated, and rightly so. Even people who have been believers in Jesus for 30 or 40 years might look at it and say, wow, that's a bit overwhelming. We're we're going to pray that God would work past that human tendency to say, that's overwhelming, and ask that His Holy Spirit would teach us, because God says His His Spirit is our teacher. And so I'm going to ask that whether you're new to church or whether you've been in church for 40 years, that we would approach this the same way, that God wants to speak to us and we're going to open up our hearts and invite him to do that. Would you pray with me that way? Father, we come before you having just lifted in just incredible song, filling our lungs with oxygen that you created to declare the greatness of who you are. And now we turn our attention to your word and we ask that you would teach us and that we would leave here changed because we opened ourselves up to the possibility that you could teach us new things about who you are and who we are in relation to you. And as a result, your claim upon our life. So God, I pray that you put us in this place where we're pliable. And regardless of what happened before we came here or what's gonna happen afterwards that we just for this moment in time clear our thoughts, and allow you to speak, and we allow uh, that you would allow your word to come to life as you promised that it does, that it's alive and it's active, and we know all that happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. So we invite that activity right now. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a principle that we use here at New Hope, and if you've been here through the course of the summer, you haven't seen it because we haven't used it since last spring, but the principle goes like this. What you believe about God determines what you do. And you may need to chew on that for a little while. That may be a thought that's completely new to you, but I guarantee you if you process it, you'll see that that's true in every facet of your life. What you believe about God determines what you do, and I would add a caveat onto it, I would say, what you do Next. What you believe about God determines what you do next, especially as it relates to Romans chapter 11. So how you respond to God determines what He will do through your life. What you believe about God determines what you do, and how you respond to God determines what He's going to do through your life. Paul continues with remarkable detail as he pens this book of Romans, and he states things that as far as we know, have never been written down in earth history. By the time his pen hits paper and the ink begins to spread across parchment or or the animal skin at that time that he's writing on, as far as we know, no one had ever stated these things before regarding God's plan for all of humanity, and it's extremely intricate. And it leads him occasionally to these places of overwhelming praise... I have a goal for you this morning. My goal is that you would leave here wanting to write songs about the greatness of God, that you would say, oh Lord my God, I'm an awesome wonder about how great you are. Well, look at how Paul states it in Romans 11:33. the magnanimous nature of God. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. I want you to see today why he writes with such magnanimous overtones. So let's come back to our premise. What you believe about God determines what you do. The case study of that is Romans chapter 11. Paul's got a group of people in his life, his nation, his friends, his social circle, if you will, his family. They're spiritually absent from an authentic relationship with God. They think they have God figured out. You got people like that in your life this morning? People in your social circle who think they know what there is to know about God and they're good with that. And they have no interest in the Bible, they have no interest in conversations about Jesus. They think they've got God figured out, and Paul's got that going on in his life, but they're completely absent from an authentic relationship with God. So it's breaking his heart. And he writes in verse 7, I'm concerned about this, so he starts out by saying, what then? What Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. You want to talk about a theological mouthful? That's it in that sentence. That you could chew on that for hours. We're going to spend some time with it, but we won't spend hours in it. It's a huge component of what he just stated, but let's come back to it. Verse 8, he begins quoting King David. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Paul's social circle, his nation, in the first century was known as being fanatically religious. There was a lot of religiosity going on. They were absorbed with rituals and details. You got anybody like that in your life that's absolutely absorbed with ritual behavior? He identified them in chapter 10. He called it out this way in verse uh, verse 2, for I bear them witness they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. In other words, they know about God, but they don't know God. They know about a God, but they don't know Him. They don't have a relationship with Him. So he says, what then? What becomes of them And he answers his own question by saying, Israel is seeking, but it's not obtained. In other words, they're chasing after something. In the original language, this word seeking after, it actually means diligently, doggedly, daily, in and out, pursuing it intensely. But he says, only those who were chosen obtained it. Now, if you're new to church, you might be thinking right now, I'm not sure I get this. How, How can somebody be seeking after religious things and seek after God and not get it? How is that possible? I thought everybody, if they chased after God, could get it. Well, you want the short answer? Here's the short answer. The short answer is they did not acknowledge or receive Jesus as Christ, as their Savior. That's the short answer. They rejected Jesus. They're running in absolutely the wrong direction, putting all their energy into things I think you could identify with, a system of works. Because we all thought at one stage in our life, at some point, where if I just crossed enough T's, if I just dotted enough I's, maybe then God would like me. And that's who he's writing about, this group of people who thought if they just did enough religious things the right way, then maybe God would let them in and, and they could enjoy heaven one day. But for now, they're just going to work really, really hard at being good. So how did they miss it? Well, they didn't acknowledge Jesus. They didn't acknowledge grace. They chose to chase after the wrong thing. And verse 70 says something really hard. He says, so the rest were hardened. I don't know if you've ever really stopped to drink in the ramifications of what that statement means. Sometimes you might have this thought fly through your mind. What does that mean? Who hardened them? Did they harden themselves? Did God do that? How does that work? And I want you to hear very, very clearly, the Lord God of the Bible hardens hearts. That might catch you by surprise. He hardens the hearts of those who refuse to believe. And so it says they were hardened, and in the original language, it's written in the passive tense. It indicates that the hardening was actually caused by an outside force. Well, that outside force is none other than God, and the one that Paul says, he gave them a spirit of stupor. He gave them a spirit of blindness, so they had eyes not to see and ears not to hear. See, the Bible clearly talks about the hardening of hearts, but I want you to hear this very, very clearly. The hardening that occurs among people whom you might know that have a hard heart towards the things of God, or in Paul's case in his world, the hard heart is never impulsive and it's never unjust because God is not unjust, amen? He can't be. He only knows justice. He only knows righteousness. So it's never unjust. Here's the backside of it. God only hardens those whose hearts reject Him first. They harden themselves to his grace. And so there's a, a scarring that it builds up over the heart. There's a searing, God says, that takes place. And people get like flesh built upon flesh, like scar tissue. We're obviously talking about the spiritual heart here. And they become hard against the things of God. Best example of that would be in the Old Testament when God's interacting with Pharaoh Pharaoh's king over the most powerful nation on earth. He has an empire called the Egyptian Empire. But God wants to free His people, so He brings plagues against the nation. And many people have approached me over the years and said, wait, I read in that story of the Exodus when Moses is there that it says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. How is that fair? Well, they haven't read earlier in the story. Where it says in plague number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So when plague number six comes along, there's so much scar tissue built up. It says, God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. A more familiar one's in the New Testament when Jesus is sitting at the Last Supper and he's got his disciples there with him and Judas is in the room and Jesus makes this statement at the Last Supper. Matthew or Luke 22, verse 21. Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, notice that, determined by God in advance, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In other words, God foreordained the betrayal, but it's intricately connected to Judas' intentions, and he's gonna be held accountable for that. See, the hardening is never separate from the one hardening their own heart first, and it's a great mystery. There's a, a lot of tension here between the election of God and man's free will man's ability to operate and his accountability. So Paul has to break over and then be quoting King David and he reaches all the way back to the Old Testament and that's what you're gonna see on the screen, an actual statement, Psalm 69. This is what he said in Romans 11. He quotes Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Psalm 69 is really famous. And it's famous because it's a messianic prophecy. King David's walking the earth, king of Israel, and yet God writes through him. He inspires him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he moves King David to write something that is hundreds of years in the future. David can't see the time of Jesus But God reveals some information to him, and so David writes it down, and he says, when the Messiah actually arrives, they're going to torture him, they're going to crucify him, they're going to kill him, and there's going to be grief and suffering. And so David writes as a result, let their table be a stumbling block. Now, how can your table be a stumbling block? When you sat down to your breakfast table this morning, you didn't stumble over your table. You're going to go to lunch after church today, you're going to sit down to a table, whether it's at a restaurant or in your house, you're going to sit around a table, and that's the place where you get nourishment. That's the place where you get refreshment. Some of you are ready to go right now, I'm like, I want to eat, okay? That's the place where you have friends hang out with you, right? In the ancient Jewish world, they thought the same way, but they also thought that way about God's Word. And so the Word of God, the Bible, was actually their source of nourishment, and they actually called it their table, their bread. And David says, let the Word of God, let the table actually become a snare to them. See, the blessings of God's Word should have led them right to Jesus, but instead it became a snare. How in the world does that happen? When religiosity takes the place of a genuine relationship with God, so individuals will read the Bible and see it as a set of do's and don'ts. If I just cross the T's, if I just dot the I's, if I just do this, this, and this, then I'm good with God and He'll let me in one day. That's a snare, to think that way. So David and Paul both write, say, you know, they missed it, the Word should have led them to Jesus, but the religious habits they became a substitute for a genuine relationship and i'm sorry to say this exact same thing this failure is repeated today i know you know people in your world who are living that way people who depend on ritual or religiosity thinking maybe if i just show up for church maybe if i just show up for church on time then god'll smile at me maybe if i just read the bible when michael says pull the pew out, i'll pull the bible out of the pew i'll be good with god There's individuals who think that way, that if I just do this, the great tragedy of human history is this. Many people place their eternal destiny in the very thing that condemns them. See, all false religion has a common theme to it. It presents a counterfeit form of salvation, and you check it. This is true in Hinduism, in Islam, in Buddhism, In Judaism, any of the isms, you check it and you're going to find this is a consistent thing. There's a system of if you just do this, 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 and this, then you're good with God. And if you just behave the right way and totally ignoring the reality that what you need is grace, you need the grace of God, you need the relationship with Jesus because you can't make yourself good enough. You can't do enough good things. God already loves you. He sent a son to die for you. But you have to recognize, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I can't fix this. But the more they feed on that falsehood, the more immune they become to the truth. And the scar tissue builds up thicker and thicker and thicker. And so Israel continued with this really hard heart to reject Jesus and became spiritually blind in the process. And so because they refused to see the very thing that's right in front of them, God confirmed, or if you would say ratified, the willing blindness. Now Paul, to bring this to a next step, he reaches deep into theology to help us understand, but there's purpose here. There's a reason for this. Go with me to verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression... See the purpose here? By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Jealous. Who? Who? To make Israel jealous. Hear this, especially if you're new to the Bible. God's actions here are not an afterthought. And it's not an outburst of anger. It's not like, well, that didn't work. I guess I'm going to try it with each people now. That's not an afterthought. This is all part of God's plan. And Paul says there's a definite purpose here. If anything, we discovered that God's astoundingly patient. Especially we looked at the story of the prodigal two weeks ago, you remember that? The the prodigal and God's on the porch and he's looking in the distance saying, I want them to come back. I hope he returns. God is anything but impatient. He's incredibly patient. So Paul writes, He's not allowed them to fall. Are they unsalvageable? No, not unsalvageable, but there truly is a spirit of stupor, he writes. How long, Paul? Well, until a point in time, if you let your eyes drift down to verse 25, he says, there's a day coming when those who are blind in Israel, they're going to see, but for now they're wandering in spiritual darkness. So the stumbling that he writes of here is the rejection of Jesus, but hear this, the rejection didn't impede God's plan. It didn't throw it off track. It was part of God's plan. On the contrary, he uses it to accomplish his objective. So in verse 11, he says, by their transgression... New hope came to the believers. They, they became believers in Jesus. See, Israel's loss temporarily is the gain of the Gentiles. Jesus spoke of this very thing in no uncertain terms. Look with me up on the screen at Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. I say to you that many, and here he's talking about the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Gentiles is not a derogatory term, by the way. It just means you weren't born Jewish. I say to you that the many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But this is really hard. Watch how this turns. But the sons of the kingdom, who is that? That's the unbelieving Jews. The sons of the kingdom, those who were chosen, they shall be cast into outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is remarkable. The very people to whom the kingdom was offered are now shut out and you've arrived at a place where you have to ask yourself, what do I believe about God? Because what I believe about God determines whether or not I even continue to pay attention to Mark right now. Do I believe that stuff? Do I believe that there's an outer darkness? Do I believe there's a place of gnashing of teeth? He's talking about hell. What do I believe about God? Because what I believe about God determines what I do. And you're at that place right now where you've got to ask yourself, what do I believe about God? So I'll ask you the big question first. If you believe that Jesus is God, would you say amen? Okay, for those of you that affirmed that and said, I believe that. I believe that Jesus is God. If he is and I believe that he is along with you, then God right here is saying there's a group of really religious people who are fanatically religious, who cross all the T's and dot all the I's and think that they're doing everything exactly right, and that group of religious people are headed for hell. How is that possible? Because they're chasing after their own righteousness, trying to make themselves likable to God. Instead of believing in the grace that God has offered them, instead of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the course of the rejection, God takes the kingdom and offers it to another people. And Jesus spoke about this thing very clearly also. Look with me again on the screen. Matthew 21. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Now verse 11 It looks like God's playing games with people when he says, why does he do this? And Paul writes, to make them jealous, and the them is Israel. And I want you to be really, really clear on this. It does not mean that God is playing some sick cosmic game with people's emotions. It's not what's going on here, so don't read it that way. God's objective, he's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to him. God's objective is to bring Israel back in line. When we think of jealousy in our world, we think of something obviously naturally we would say that's a negative thing. Our mind immediately goes to negative thoughts when we think of jealousy. So if you've got a busted up relationship and you recognize you've lost the relationship and then you see your ex-lover is with someone else, there may be a tinge of jealousy. It can erupt into things like becoming a stalker. It can erupt into rage, and we immediately associate the thought of jealousy with really negative thoughts, and we're looking at this saying, Paul's saying that God is trying to create jealousy. Jealousy can be negative at its core, yet here's God's intention. He intends to stimulate jealousy among one group of people for the purpose of drawing them back to himself. So watch how Paul explains it in verse 12. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more, and if you've got your Bible open, you might want to circle how much more right now. That's a great statement. I'll show you why in just a minute. How much more will the fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, New Hope Church. I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from dead? It wouldn't be much of an exaggeration to say that there was a disdain between people groups in the first century when Jesus walked the planet. When you think of the Jewish nation and you think of the Greeks, the Gentile nations, you would say that there was definitely an angst there, but when we use the word disdain, we begin thinking of things like what we watched in Washington, D.C. this last week. We think of the disdain that Democrats have towards Republicans and Republicans have towards Democrats, and they, they can't seem to play nice together in the room. And we think, well, there's really a disdain there. Or maybe our mind goes to football and we think of MSU versus U of M. We think, there's a disdain there. Okay, our mind goes there, but we use that term inappropriately if we think that's the same way to apply it over to what he's talking about here. There was such disdain among this racial entity, there was racism to the degree that one people group would look at another people group and say, those people, they're beyond the reach of God. God would have no mercy for them whatsoever. So in the Jewish world, looking at the Gentile world, saying, they're beyond the reach of God's mercy. They can't be touched. God would never offer anything to them. And so when statements in the Bible come out, like in the New Testament that Paul writes, you know what, you people who rejected Jesus, God's taking the kingdom from you, the relationship, and offering it to another people group. Can you imagine what a bitter pill that was to swallow? What those people that we hate, that we despise, you're telling us that's whom God's going after. That's too much, but this is consistent with the things that are written in the Bible. Let me take you back to Romans chapter ten. You might remember this if you were here in June. I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding. Will I anger you? And through Isaiah, I was found, and I through Isaiah said, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. He's writing about you, if you're a believer in Jesus. God says, I chased after you. You didn't even ask for me, and I I came after you. How does the jealousy factor happen, then, that he's talking about? Well, as the Lord God began to pour out blessings on the church, and the church exploded and grew and grew and grew, much like new hope is growing You especially see this in Acts chapter 2. People were watching saying, what is this? They seem to have the power of the Holy Spirit upon them. People are speaking in languages they don't even know. They're healing people. How could this be? And there's a jealousy factor in Acts chapter 2 saying, I want that. I want what those people are exhibiting. We used to have that. We don't have that anymore. It should be the desire of every genuine, authentic Christ follower to evidence a transformed life. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Creating a jealousy because the richness of Christ is so powerful in you that you just can't stand it if you can't say, Oh, Lord, my God, when I an awesome wonder, consider all the world's that you have made. I just want to say amen to that you got to evidence that kind of thing publicly. And the Bible says if you do that, it draws people to faith in Jesus. Even more so, he says, about his own nation, that his nation would witness that and there would be a jealousy factor that would turn people to Christ. Here's the very unfortunate thing. Unfortunately, many have seen a Christianity that reflects very little of the righteousness of Christ. And so when they see, and I'll use the term loosely in in brackets, Christians, when they see Christians who are immoral in their behavior, making really poor life choices, or worse yet, anti-Semitic, that's anything but attractive to Christ. It becomes absolutely repulsive to them, and it pushes them away, and they become anything but jealous, and don't think that isn't part of the strategy of Satan. (laughs) <laughs> to work against God's plan. And so instead of being drawn closer to Jesus, they're further and further away. Now I told you if you were looking at verse 12 closely, you might want to in your own Bible circle the phrase, how much more, because Paul uses this as a series of contrast. He's famous for doing this. I know that Romans 5.8 is precious to many of you. You've memorized it, committed it to memory. And Romans five eight is full of contrast. Let me show you how he uses much more in this way. Look with me on the screen. God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see the contrast. Sinners, but Jesus still died for you. Watch the contrast. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Somebody say amen to that. We're saved because of what Jesus did from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, opposite, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words, if a dead Savior can redeem you, how much more can a living Savior keep you? With this exact same logic... Of the contrast, Paul draws that same thinking over into Romans 11. He says, if Israel's faith resulted in you, New Hope, becoming believers in Jesus, it resulted in the salvation of the Gentiles, how much greater is the blessing going to be when they're faithful to Jesus? Did you know that one day we're told that Israel as a nation is going to have mass revival? And I think it happens almost in one day from the way the Bible writes it. There's going to be instantaneous turning to Jesus. Scripture writes about this. Look with me on the screen. Zechariah chapter 12. God will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. That's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. They're going to look to God for salvation. And so it goes on to say in Zechariah 13.1, there's a blessing that's going to come out of this. Watch this. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. And you think of Jesus talking about the living water that springs forth. That's what David's writing about. The fountain of living water to the Jewish nation so that they turn to Jesus. And in that day that they're writing about, he's talking about that day when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth. In that day, not only will Israel turn to Christ... But Satan will be bound. How good would that be? Satan will be bound. In that day, the earth will be renewed. And we're talking physically, a remaking of this planet. In that day, justice will prevail. In that day, worldwide peace. We've never seen that. See, we're talking about the millennial kingdom here. So when Paul says, how much more that's pretty much more right how much more will result the blessings because of their faithfulness that's the much more he's talking about the much more of israel's turning to faith in jesus and brings about a blessing for all the world because it ushers in the millennial kingdom and the tragedy of the rejection of jesus is surpassed by the glory of the belief now paul ends with the reality that he has to give a hard check to the church because if there's anything that we're capable of, especially in 2018, is developing an arrogant, prideful attitude about what we have. And it goes like this. I'm glad I got it. Too bad they don't. I'm I'm glad I understand how great you are, God. Too bad they don't get it. Glad I got my ticket punched. Man, they really miss it, don't they? Paul says don't develop that arrogant attitude. Don't go there. Rather, with humbleness, recognize what you've been given. And this is how he presents it, verse 16. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear... For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Many people would read sections like that and say, see, that's why I don't read the Bible because it's really hard to understand. I want you to know what's coming next is even harder. Verse 22. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity But to you, new hope, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able. This is such a great statement. God is able to graft them in again. So you right away recognize Paul is writing of an extremely serious condition as he ends this. There's people who fell from opportunity, he says. What they believed about God determined what they did next. And what they believed about God is that they could make God really happy if they dotted the I's and they crossed the T's and they showed up for church on time. And they fell. So they missed the opportunity. But God's goodness and kindness and graciousness to you So he bears down with this thought, behold then the kindness and the severity of God. And in context, the falling means to fall down completely, utterly ruined. In other words, Paul looks at the past and says, there was an eternal choice made and a scar tissue built up over the heart and individuals refused the grace of Jesus. Now Paul writes about us developing an arrogant attitude about that, like, I'm good, I've got my ticket punched, I know who Jesus is, too bad they don't. In truth, it did not take very long for the early church to turn with scorn and ridicule towards the Jews who were unbelieving. Even though the first church was made up primarily 90% of Jewish Christians, but as the church exploded across Europe... And many Gentiles came to faith in Christ. They began looking at the group of people who rejected Jesus and scorn and ridicule erupted and the very notion fueled the flames of anti-Semitism and Satan pounced on it and he dumped gasoline on the fire with a prejudice that has carried over right into our generation. The world has turned on one nation no more than they've turned on Israel over the years. We see it still in our lifetime. I'm here to tell you, God is anti-racism. He created the races. He's anything but racist. I'm not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So Satan just pounces on that because he knows it's human nature to be racist at our core. So John MacArthur writes about this. This is coming right to the ending here. I want you to see how he addresses this issue. Here's his quote The breaking off and the grafting in were based on belief, not on any inherent racial or national inferiority or superiority. The issue is not worthiness, and it is not racial, ethnic, social, intellectual, or even moral. The only issue is faith. They were broken off because of unbelief, and the Gentiles who believed were grafted in on the basis of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he uses this interesting analogy when he talks about the first piece of dough versus the lump. And just bear with me. Don't reach for your car keys yet. I'm almost done. Here's the image he's using and the reason he's using it. In every household in the ancient world, to make a sacrifice to God was to break off the first piece and set it aside. So in the Jewish world, they would take the first piece of of a loaf of bread and set it aside for the priest who worked in the temple. You do this today when you bring an offering to the church financially to help the work of God. You bring a portion of your paycheck and put it in the offering box. And it's like saying, God, I'm giving back to you a portion of what you've blessed me with. It's not the whole, but it's a portion that represents the whole. It's just a piece. Thank you, God, for what you've done. Well, that's exactly what they've done here. That portion that's set aside is holy to God. And though it's only a small piece, that portion represents the entire piece. Paul's looking back to the imagery of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph, the 12 tribes of Israel, who were the first piece of their nation. And he says, if that first piece was holy, well, the rest is also, if the first piece of bread is holy, then the lump also, now apply this to history, God accepted the patriarch Abraham, and in so doing, he set apart all of his descendants for God to forsake them would be to renege on his promises. And that is something his character will not allow. But here's the trouble you and I have. When we come to stories like this, we'd say, but they rejected Jesus. The ultimate rejection, they threw him away and put him on the cross. And when they put him on the cross, they killed him. Well, as a result, God sent the gospel out to you. God sent it out to you. How fortunate are we. As a result, Gentile believers all over the world knew hope. Are saved so Paul argues you know what you have no reason to be conceited. there's no reason to be arrogant you didn't do anything to earn this it's by grace you are saved right church through faith and then he argues but to those who do not believe you better have a holy reason to fear you better develop a willingness to fear the God who, if he didn't spare the natural branches, don't think he's going to spare you, don't think he's going to spare the others. So Paul advises, you'd be really wise to develop a righteous fear, strongly resist arrogance and pride because what you believe about God determines what you do next. So I would hope that you leave here today and become songwriters like Paul. I, I don't know that he was actually even gifted musically, but I want you to see, we're going to end right here, with this beautiful chorus that Paul looks over all this that we just talked about. And he says, how great are you, God? Look at this statement here in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. So you can see why he writes the way he does. It's like, God, you are awesome. Look at your plans. Now You might be leaving here this morning thinking, these are things I never knew before. Or or you might be thinking, I got it, Mark. I I know it. That's the basics. I got this down. I understand this. Either position, it's all good. It's all good. Here's more importantly, though. What are you going to do with it? How's it going to impact your life, it may be that you have the basics down. Here's how I would ask you to pray as you go out the door, and I'm going to pray for you. That God will simply translate what you know into the lives of the people that you interact with every week. I guarantee you, you know somebody that needs to know this. Let's pray. How merciful you are, Father. Father. And how rich is your grace. Thank you that we do understand that we've been saved by grace. But don't let us build up a calloused, arrogant attitude, Father, towards others who haven't seen it yet. Rather, Father, I pray that you would make us compassionate and that you would increase that in us so purposefully. When we go to restaurants, when we go to the bank, when we go to work, when we go to school, God, that you would make us that much more conscious of the people around us who desperately need to know the truth of who Jesus Christ is. and We pray for that. We simply ask for that, God. Make us better at talking about this stuff. And we ask for it in the name of the one who is worthy of all of our conversation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.